The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. The Incredible Hulk has long been a character in search of an identity. Which is ironic, given he has quite a few of them. Despite being one of my favourite characters, I always struggle when people ask for recommendations for favourite Hulk stories. Even as far back as the original concept, it seems like even the creators, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, struggled with what exactly to do with him. He's a character that never had that early, defining run. Readers can point to the Steve Ditko-drawn Spider-Man comics as the definitive take on that character, or the Jack Kirby era of the Fantastic Four, or Captain America, as examples of how those characters should be handled. But the Hulk, like Daredevil, I guess, always seemed to be a great character in search of a direction. Throughout the 60s and 70s, the Hulk always had consistently okay stories. Decent writers and artists worked on the character, but it was rare that the stories were memorable. Fun, yes, readable, certainly, enjoyable even, but really definitive. And one has to wonder why this is. The character is fascinating, even if we ignore the inconsistencies of the early days. The story of Dr. Bruce Banner is riveting. More Robert Louis Stevenson than Superman, the Hulk had heavy overtones of the original Universal horror films, with its central character, Bruce Banner, undergoing an uncontrollable transformation whenever stressed, angered, or feeling any heightened emotion. Hell, in the early days, he transformed at the fall of night. His alter ego, a seven-foot-tall, muscular monster, taps into a primal force. The feelings we all have that sometimes the veneer of civilization needs to fall away and the beast within given full reign. The character deals with themes of duality, anger management, anxiety, repression, lack of emotion and a primal need man has to simply let go and scream sometimes at an unjust and uncurring world. As Kenneth Johnson, producer of the 1977 television show based upon the character once said, there's a little Hulk in all of us. The Hulk has long been a favourite character of children who wore their emotions on their sleeves and people with emotional issues who sometimes have difficulty expressing themselves. The Hulk is a force of nature, the id let loose. Why then has such a rich character struggled? And why are some of the best Hulk stories when a writer focuses purely on the banner side of the equation? Case in point, a previously ignored run, by me anyway, written by Bruce Jones with art by many different talented draftsmen, such as John Romita Jr., Mike Diodato Jr. and Dougie Braithwaite, who may be a junior but doesn't have it after his name. I'd slept on this run for some reason, ignoring it when it came out. Possibly I wasn't in a Hulk mood when this series began. Maybe I was still childishly stomping my feet that Peter David wasn't writing the character anymore. Whatever the reason, I ignored it. Until now. I'd been reading the tweets of my friend Michael Bailey, who was reading three different Hulk runs at the same time, and what he was saying about this Bruce Jones run made it sound interesting. By pure coincidence, Comic Marts had started up again after the pandemic, and at the first one I went back to in Liverpool, I found every issue of the Jones run, except one, typically, in the cheap bins. Spurred on by what Mike had said, I bought the lot, and he came to the rescue in regards to that missing issue, as did eBay when I eventually completed it as a physical collection. But thank you very much to Michael for that, because it meant I could actually carry on reading. As much as I love the Hulk... There are huge swathes of his publishing history that are a blank slate to me. He's a tough nut to crack, so when a recommendation comes my way for an impressive Hulk run, I'm there. 
None of this is helping me whittling down my comics collection, though. The Bruce Jones run was part of the Joe Quesada Bill Jemis era of Marvel Comics, which I went into in my recent Spider-Man run. In a nutshell, for those that haven't listened to those episodes, Marvel filed for bankruptcy in 1996 after mismanagement, creative fallout and sloppy editorial decisions meant the once mighty world of Marvel was in disarray. But as a wise man once said, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. So, in 2000, Marvel, in a last-ditch attempt to bolster the floundering line, turned to Joe Quesada and Bill Jemis to save Marvel Comics. Both men had precedence in marketing and comics production, and both men approached the job with gusto. Nothing was off-limits. New printing techniques, a different approach to lettering and subtle computer colouring were all introduced, and creative pitches that in any other era would have been deemed too off-the-wall were given a try. Not all of them were successful. The lowercase lettering in the comics is god-awful, and just ask the Punisher how being an angel worked out for it. But when you chuck loads of stuff at a wall, some of it just isn't going to stick. But being during often yields exceptional results. One of these during decisions was to hire new writers from the indie comics scene or from Hollywood. And for the Hulk, they got both. Quisada and Jemis were often arrogant, abrasive, and didn't care who they pissed off, and yet, it worked. Despite the bullishness, both men did salvage Marvel Comics, and without the Quisada Jemis era, we wouldn't now have had a company worth billions of dollars at the box office. Nor would Marvel have been of any interest to Disney, who now own Marvel Comics. The Hulk's history is long and complicated, both behind the scenes and for the character. After 15 years writing The Incredible Hulk, acclaimed writer Peter David was shown the door, an editorial decision which many fans never really forgave Marvel for. A disastrous relaunch from writer John Byrne and artist Ron Garney followed. To revamp the Hulk, therefore, Quisada originally turned to Paul Jenkins, who reinvigorated the title, particularly the villain The Abomination, but Jenkins was merely the prelude. With issue 34 in late 2001, editor Axel Alonso hired Bruce Jones to steer the good ship Hulk, and he would step aboard for an impressive 32-issue run. Jones had written comics before, but had moved on to other venues, so much so that many readers didn't realise he was an old hand, thinking he was, in fact, a new talent. Jones started his run with The Return of the Monster, a six-issue arc with art by artist John Romita Jr. Prompted by his editor, Jones felt no desire, need or inclination to look at what had gone before, instead starting anew with no need for readers to have read the last issue, the last year or even any Hulk comics before. This was perhaps one of the best things about the Quisada era. In those early days, Marvel were actively seeking new and lapsed readers, whilst keeping hold of the old ones. So, pretty much any take was on the table, as long as it didn't overtly enmesh itself too much in continuity, which was seen to be off-putting to new readers. The tone of this opening six-issue arc is impressive, a darker, more adult take on the TV show. Reading this, I could imagine Bill Bixby saying these lines, and playing this more grounded take. Banner is back on the run, moving from town to town, staying in seedy joints and having to keep one step ahead of the authorities who want him for a crime he, or rather the Hulk, have committed. The murder of a small boy named Ricky Mayers. Here's how I imagine the opening titles of this television series would go. Dr. Robert Bruce Banner, physician, scientist, caught in the heart of a nuclear explosion of gamma radiation. And now, when triggered emotionally, Dr. Bruce Banner finds himself transformed into the dark personification of his repressed rage and fury. Bruce Banner is on the run from the police, the government, clandestine forces, faceless and compassionless, and the unbridled beast within men call the Incredible Hulk.
Dr. Bruce Banner knows the dread of the hunted, the terror of a mind never completely his, never entirely sane. Now, we need to get something up front before we begin. Regular listeners to me will know I am someone who is a strong proponent of a Hulk that doesn't kill innocent civilians. So why do I like a story that begins with the idea that the Hulk has killed a small boy? Well, it's an intriguing plot, and there are question marks around it from the get-go. Because let's be honest, I don't care if it's unrealistic that the Hulk hasn't killed anybody, even accidentally, in his many rampages. Because you know what else is also unrealistic? That a five-foot, ten-inch skinny white dude transforms into a seven-foot-plus-tall green muscular monster. Realism isn't on the table. The Hulk doesn't kill. Largely because Banner won't kill. But also because if he does that, we don't sympathise with him. At that point, the Hulk is a murderer, not a misunderstood creature. I can't get on board at all with fans who want these characters to be killers. What is gained from a Wonder Woman that lops off people's heads? Or a Superman who snaps his enemies' necks? Give me a sympathetic protagonist who doesn't kill because killing is easy in stories yes man is a killer but give me a man who takes the higher ground makes that decision we're not going to kill today and do that every day now as i've mentioned the difference here is there is a question mark over this death did the hulk in fact kill this kid banner is investigating he needs to know he's also learning how to control the hulk banner is practicing control techniques from meditation yoga using his mind to envisioning calming people and places and discussing his problems with a mr blue over the internet bruce goes under the name mr green if this seems familiar it's because all of this would be adapted for the 2008 incredible hulk movie these first six issues are a perfect introduction to the character and the era. There are some familiar tropes. It's someone younger than me that doesn't hear Johannel's lonely man theme as Banner hitchhikes around. And each issue is a small morality play, whilst contributing to the greater whole. Jones sets up where he's going beautifully. The first issue has elements of the ongoing story, but these are drip-fed. Jones choosing to focus on Banner helping a talented and intelligent teenager from falling into a gang. This is the setup for each of the first six issues, which, despite mostly being standalone stories, keep dropping more and more hints as to the overall storyline. Most of Jones's run is allowed to stand alone from the wider Marvel Universe, a reason this held up so very well when read nearly 20 years later, but it's not completely immune to editorial mandates. Case in point, Jones's second issue. Bill Jemis just blanket-ordered all Marvel books for one month to tell dialogue-less stories, letting the art do the heavy lifting, although he called them silent issues. He must have read different comics to me, because all my comics are silent, none of them speak to me, unless I'm having a particularly bad day. This was designated Nuff Said Month. It's a shame that Jones had to deal with this only one issue into his run, but Jones and Romita Jr. make it work, with a small, intimate story about Banner befriending an autistic girl in a diner before being apprehended by shady men in black. As well as drip-feeding the overarching plot, we learn new things about Banner. As the story continues, he has a small measure of control, thanks to the techniques he's been studying that I mentioned earlier. He can also tap into a small portion of the Hulk's strength when he's Banner, which proves to be very advantageous. The Hulk also has a small measure of Banner's intellect, which increases as the story continues. This puts lie to Brian Bendis' claims around this same time that Banner can't control the Hulk, implying Bendis didn't bother reading other people's comics. To avoid detection, Banner changes his appearance. He shaves his head and grows a beard, but he's at a severe disadvantage when compared to his TV counterpart. 
TV banner was only hunted by one lone man. Comics banner has entire armies and government figures after him. As the issues progress, the threat level is amped up. Assassins are dispatched after Banner, but this being a Marvel comic, they have extra normal abilities. The man, Slater, seems a garden variety killer, but the woman, Sandra Verdugo, has something about her, and we'll learn what that is as we go along. Jones builds up a wonderful level of suspense in these issues, aided immeasurably by Ramita Jr.'s art. Tom Palmer's inks complement Ramita's pencils, and the new colouring techniques create a good-looking comic book. Ramita Jr. suits big, blockbusting characters like the Hulk, and although he has faltered of late, his style morphing into something akin to Frank Miller crossed with Minecraft, he's at the top of his game here. The first arc has set up all we need to know going forward, and has done a lot of the heavy lifting in introducing new characters and bringing back old ones in a new, reader-friendly way. Doc Samson is back, but as with everyone in this comic, we can't be sure whose side he's on. One side... Or the other. There are added twists. Ricky was Verdugo's son. Encrypted files contain data on a Hulk killing gun. But they don't want to kill the Hulk. Whoever this is, they need him for some reason. There's no resolutions in these first six issues because that's not the point. This is a beginning, not an ending. Jones taps into the conspiracy-laden zeitgeist of the late 90s, early 2000s that gave flight to the X-Files and Men in Black. Jones also drops the multiple personality disorder aspect of the series that's been around since the mid to late 1980s, and this is for the better. I like the Joe Fix-It stuff as much as any reader, but let's get back to basics. Bruce Banner, scientist, undergoes a startling metamorphosis and becomes a green monster of pure rage, the id unleashed. That's all we really need to know. Ramita Jr. had been working on the series for a while when Jones came aboard, and sadly he jumped ship after this first arc, not to return until much later. Lee Weeks takes over as artist for the next arc, which his banner gets mixed up with a hostage situation in the town of Miser, or Misery, as the sign outside town has it. Jones balances the story's main protagonist, a disgraced cop who blew a previous hostage situation, and the man holding up the hostages, and every man having one of the Joker's patented one bad days exceptionally well. The balancing of the character's motivations and problems with Bruce's desire to help without changing into the Hulk results in another script that could be ripped straight from the TV show. The difference here is that the FBI get wind of the hostage situation once they realise Bruce Banner is a hostage, and if you've seen Die Hard, you'll know that the FBI getting involved isn't a good thing. Of course, the FBI aren't all they seem, with the lead officer being Special Agent Pratt, and he works for a mysterious organisation working against Banner, entitled Home Base. Lee Weeks picks up the artistic baton from Romita Jr. flawlessly, his dark and moody art style suiting the storyline perfectly. Jones marries the A-plot of disgraced police officer Riker, seeking some measure of solace for her previous screw-up, with the tragic story of the advertising agent, Harry, whose firing kicks off this adventure, and the B-plot of Agent Pratt's pursuit of the Hulk wonderfully, again dropping a few nuggets of information regarding the overall story, with the revelation that home base wants the Hulk's blood. Lee Weeks moves aside for the next person in the artistic musical chair, Stuart Immerman, for the next story arc. Immerman is another great choice for the series, and if you must have a different artist every four or five issues, at least have complimentary ones. Home base, it turns out, has planted a tracker in Doc Sampson's eye, so that when he finds Banner, and he will find Banner, they will be able to locate both men. Doc Sampson isn't quite that dumb, though, and this leads Bruce to a small town where he hooks up with a beautiful young woman who tries to help him. As in the TV show... Banner gets a lot of attention from the ladies, and strong femme fatales loom large over Jones's run, be it Verdugo, Betty Ross or Nadia Blonsky. Women, like the men, have their own agenda, and, like the men, cannot be trusted. But Bruce has a soft spot for women in trouble, and Achilles' heel certain members of the cast are only too keen to exploit. In this arc, we learn that home base can regenerate people when they die, meaning Agent Pratt isn't quite as dead as we were led to believe by story's end. Jones peppers his stories with literary quotes and allusions from Byron to Coleridge, but this story arc features some shocking twists and turns that I won't spoil for you in the hope that you'll go and read this run yourself. 
More moving around of the artistic chairs again allows Mike Diodato Jr. to sit down, returning to the Hulk after a run in the 1990s. This arc, Dark Mind, Dark Heart, moves more pieces around for the home base storyline and is more focused on that than the earlier arcs that had that merely as the backdrop. Banner ends up at a diner in the middle of nowhere. Banner likes nowhere, especially the middle part. There he encounters a young woman who seems to run the general store, the diner, and the bar. It's not that big a town. But it's not long before there's trouble brewing, and Banner takes solace with the young woman. Simultaneously, at home base, two agents are awakening an abomination. The abomination, to be exact, showing him footage of Banner, the woman, and the burgeoning relationship that ends up in the bedroom. For the woman is the aforementioned Nadia Blonsky, Emil Blonsky's wife. And Emil Blonsky, for those that don't know, is the abomination. The shadowy conspiracy, the double and triple agents, the flip-flopping of characters' motivations and the identity of Mr. Blue are all at the forefront of an arc that proves pivotal to the overall story. It's also one of the best, offering up tantalising new details about home base, the conspiracy regarding the Hulk's blood and the many different relationships Banner has forged over this story thus far, from Doc Samson, the returning Betty Ross, Nadia Blonsky and Sandra Verdugo. Sadly, things slide a little for the next arc, a six-part story drawn by Leandro Fernandez. Banner learns that Crusher Creel, the absorbing man, can control people with his mind, and he's systematically moving himself closer to the Hulk to use the Hulk's power to break him out of his confinement cell. It's hard to say why this particular story didn't land for me, but the art doesn't help. Fernandez is cartoonier than the other artists have been so far, and this gives a level of unreality to the story that breaks the suspension of disbelief somewhat. The art reminds me of John McCrea's work on Hitman, but McCrea's work on Hitman worked because Hitman had its tongue firmly planted in its cheek. Having that kind of art on this kind of story... jars. Crusher Creel also seems a little out of character. The story doesn't really play into the overall story of home base at all, and in fact undercuts that story with the reveal that this is yet another secret shadowy cabal working behind the scenes. Now, a break from the arc, a palette cleanser episode in a TV show or whatever is often appreciated, and had this been one issue, that would have been fine. But it isn't. It's five issues. Taken alone, hide in plain sight is fine, but it can't help but be a come-down after Dark Mind, Dark Hearts. Mike Diodata returns to the artistic duties for split decisions, as Bruce Jones starts to bring all his dangling plot threads together in what I assume is the beginning of the end, now that his run is fast approaching its conclusion. Doc Samson learns a secret from Sandra Vudugo that shakes him to the core. The identity of Mr. Blue is revealed, and they too have a dangerous problem to solve, and the secrets of home base stand revealed to all. I was a tad torn on this arc, to be honest. I liked it, in that it's pretty gripping and well done, but home base starts to feel like a Bond villains organisation rather than a government-run cabal, and Nadia and Mr. Blue suddenly have to turn into Bill Paxton to deal with being overrun by skittering creatures reminiscent of aliens. Nevertheless, the revelations come thick and fast. We learn that the Hulk didn't kill Ricky Mayers, Ricky's parentage, the true identity of Mr. Blue, why Nadia Blonsky betrayed her husband, and what home base are really after. And Sandra walks around in her underwear a lot, but that's a lot more than some characters get to wear. The art is great, and it's good to feel back on track, even if some of the story elements seem a little odd. Still, other than the main mystery of who exactly is the mysterious figure behind Homebase, this arc almost wraps most of it up, and does it mostly successfully. Dougie Braithwaite returns the pantheon of artists for Dead Like Me, a four-part arc that sees Banner reluctantly stay with Nadia, despite the revelations that Mr. Blue is in fact a very much alive Betty Ross, Bruce's wife. She also has cancer, which Doc Sampson believes can be cured by the Hulk's blood. She's alive due to the machinations of home base, who have managed to find a way to resurrect dead bodies as well as make workable clones, one of which is of Bruce Banner. 
Jones emphasised the character's emotional involvement with each other here, showing what a great job he's done of establishing all these relationships. There's the bizarre love triangle between Betty, Doc Samson and Banner, the addition of Nadia adding a square corner to the triangle. We see the lengths these men will go to to save Betty. We understand the antagonistic but respectful vibe given off between Nadia and Betty, and the raw feelings that are present for these people are never far from the surface. Jones keeps these character moments at the forefront of the story wonderfully, without ever losing sight of the fact that he is writing a superhero comic. Dead Like Me concludes as Bruce Jones's run began, Banner alone and uncured, leaving with his bag and walking down the lonely desert road towards California. Now, the final seven issues may be considered contentious, because I certainly had mixed feelings about them. The next five are the first time the series mixed and matched its artists, with Mike Diodato Jr. starting the story and Dougie Braithwaite completing it. Issue 70, Symmetry, is a standalone tale of a familiar kind. Banner stumbles into a small town and blunders into another person's problem. It's a good tale, well told, with an interesting antagonist, and again I could easily see Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno in this story. However, the next four issues, big things, seem wasteful, with Banner helping Iron Man himself, Tony Stark, in perfecting a gamma-proof Iron Man armour. As with the Crusher Creel story earlier on, there's nothing actually wrong with this story, and had it been earlier in the run, it probably would have been perfectly fine. If I didn't know any better... I'd assume this was an editorial mandate thrust upon Jones to tie in with the Iron Man movie. But this story was still a few years before that movie came out, so it's just a bizarre placement that makes it seem like a detour, just as we should be getting to the big finale. And what of the big finale? Well, I'm glad you asked. Bruce Jones' big conclusion to his epic arc culminates in two issues. Yes, two Issue 75 and issue 76 for those that are keeping count at home. Both these issues have two different artists, Derek Robertson and Dougie Braithwaite respectively. For me, this is a misstep. The key artists on this run have been John Romita Jr. and Mike Diodato Jr. And to not have either one of those artists, the one who started the run and the one who contributed the most, to not be a part of the finale seems somewhat ill-judged. Wake to Nightmare finds Bruce awakening in a shoddy hotel room to the site of a nuclear-devastated Los Angeles. The man behind home base stands revealed, and it's the leader, because who else would it be? And his final plan is underway. I was expecting this to be a bit of a disappointment, but you know what? I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a cheat that the leader was sans moustache during his previous appearances on the monitor screens, but it's no more of a cheat than the later reveal of the Red Hulk. And yes, it could be seen as anticlimactic that the big bad was the leader, but he's been conspicuous in his absence throughout this entire run, so it was kind of inevitable he'd show up eventually. And these final two issues do wrap it all up, after a fashion. By the end, home base is gone, Numerous characters have had their stories ended, or they end up dead, and there aren't too many dangling threads. It's a bittersweet ending, though, with Banner in pretty much the same place at the end as he was at the beginning, and his relationships in tatters. Overall, though, I enjoyed this run immensely, hence why I'm covering it. I don't do hate reading or watching. Bruce Jones's darker, more adult take on the TV show with added psychological complexity, and the bonus of actually being content to admit it's a comic book, reaped in dividends for the readers, although it's a run that presumably works a lot better when read as a whole than in individual issue format. The story builds its tension nicely, with certain issues being almost unbearable in how long they indulge in foreplay before getting to the climax, the appearance of the Hulk. Information is doled out well, but the first half juggles standalone adventures with the ongoing arc much better than the second half. 
The art maintains its high standard throughout, although it's a shame one or two artists couldn't handle the whole thing, as even the best artists with similar sensibilities can sometimes cause a jarring effect in the reading. When an artist is of a completely different style, it's tonal whiplash. One thing worth mentioning that I've not dwelled on over the duration of this show is that the covers in this era are simply fantastic for the most part, from standard takes on the Hulk from Diodato Jr. to the more esoteric choices from Carr Andrews. The covers were never anything less than delightful. Moreover, though, Jones's choice to focus on Banner was a canny one. I know I'd had enough of Peter David's exploration of MPD and different Hulks all living within Banner, This exploration of Banner and the Hulk learning how to live together, albeit not in perfect harmony, but together at least, was a breath of fresh air. Oddly, despite being a sales success, Bruce Jones' Hulk run seems divisive, so pretty much the same as every other piece of geek entertainment out there at the moment. Taken on its own merits, the Jones run is a good read. It's self-contained, so easily ignorable if you're not a fan. You don't need to write a six-part follow-up, as writer Peter David did, where he established that large chunks of the Hulk's life were a dream to be ignored or embraced as you see fit. This can be applied to all stories, I guess, Peter, but given that editor Tom Brivert stacks the decks of the letters page to be an outright attack on the Jones run, plus Peter David's own column on his website from August 2003, where he admits he doesn't really get Jones's take on the character, it's hard not to see this as specifically targeting that work. It's so irritating. Look, people, doing this shit is why comics are in the mess they are in. Writer A writes a story. Instead of ignoring it, writer B does a story that negates writer A's story. Writer A returns to negate writer B's negation of writer A. And it's all just so fucking childish. It's especially pointless because after this, Writers would simply return to the dwell of exploding the Hulk status quo whenever they wanted. Writer Brian Bendis, for example, would once again completely misunderstand character logic and misinterpret continuity to create a convoluted backstory for a story called Planet Hulk. Fortunately, Planet Hulk was written by Greg Pak, and he turned that story into a massive success. For any perceived problems, though, Bruce Jones showed us the Hulk can, when handled well, be a deeply psychological strip with, at its heart, a compelling and fascinating protagonist in Bruce Banner. Okay, this bit is rather weird. It's going to be a bit of a rambling stream of conscious thing. Largely for me to get my thoughts together on No Time to Die, the 25th and most recent James Bond film, which has just opened in cinemas. I cannot get into the whys and the wherefores of this without spoilers. So if you haven't seen No Time to Die and are planning on seeing No Time to Die, then I would switch the episode off here or skip along to the email section. Because if you wrote an email, then obviously you're in that bit. Okay, Andrew interjecting here from in the future to say that if you want to skip this bit, the timer mark is 47 minutes, 15 seconds. Still here? Alright, it's on you. Don't come whining to me. No Time to Die kills James Bond. Definitively, pretty much. It kills him. He's dead. And I don't quite know what the hell the producers were thinking with this. Because 
For the majority of its runtime, its exceptionally long runtime, but still, No Time to Die is up there with Skyfall as a really entertaining Daniel Craig Bond adventure. Now, when I say that, it means you have to basically go along with what the vibe of the Bond movies have been while Daniel Craig has been James Bond. The silliness, the overt gadgetry, and a lot of the funny aspects have been thrown out the window. And the Daniel Craig era of the Bond movies have largely been quite serious spy movies with occasional forays into, you know, gadgetry. But it's always been grounded in some semblance of a a reality, a fictional reality, but still a reality. Hell, it took them three movies to bring back Money, Penny and Q. Now, I say this as a big fan of the Daniel Craig era. I love Casino Royale. It's a top three Bond movie. I think Quantum of Solace is perfectly entertaining. You do have to follow it closely to figure out what it's about, but you can. Skyfall is another classic. Spectre's good for its first hour, and then Flounder's in the back half. So for the most part, the Daniel Craig era has been something that I have been there for. But for the longest time, I couldn't actually figure out my feelings for No Time to Die. I didn't know what I thought of it. Did I like it? Did I not like it? I just didn't know. And it basically boils down to that ending. They kill James Bond. And I don't know how they're going to get out of that. I don't know how you come back from that. Because, for one, audiences don't like it. You know, you think they would have learned. We don't want to see Captain Kirk die. We don't want to see Han Solo die. We don't want to see James Bond die. We don't want to come out of a James Bond movie miserable. Especially not at the moment. That's the last thing we wanted. And I can't help but think that, hey, that's going to hurt the box office. Because people like me are going to be like, well, I don't really want to go back and watch that. Because it's got a downer of an ending. And let's not beat around the bush. It is a downer of an ending. Bond basically surrenders to death. I don't want to quite go as far as say it was suicide. But he doesn't make an effort to save himself. And that's not James Bond. That's just not who Bond is. And I I can't wrap my head around what the hell was going through their minds. It seems very much to me that the lead actor was leaving. He'd had enough. What have we not done before? We've not killed the character. But the general audience have now seen him die. And this puts the Bond series in a really precarious position now. Because what this means is, if they just recast and do another James Bond film in three or four years with a new actor in the role you have essentially just negated the Daniel Craig era completely. Whereas all the other films, you can still kind of work into some kind of backstory for the character, even though the Daniel Craig ones are clearly a ground zero reboot. You can, if you squint a bit, make them all be the adventures of one guy, if you really want to. Certainly throughout the Connery, Moore, and then into the Dalton, Pierce Brosnan era, you could do that. You can't do that now. Daniel Craig's five movies standalone and if you're just going to do that to recast him and bring him back in another film then you've essentially told your audience to not care what happens in these movies when what you've done in the daniel craig area is go to great lengths to make people care about james bond because that's one of the real strengths of the daniel craig era prior to the craig era i was never worried about bond You know, I never thought he was really going to die. I mean, he dances with death in every film. They make a point of of saying, both in the Fleming novels and in Casino Royale, Daniel Craig's first film, that the life expectancy of a double O isn't very long. Most of them don't get to retirement age. And in, I believe in in Fleming's novels, they're pensioned off at about 45 years of age because they're burnt out if they've survived. They're just knackered. So it's baked into the premise that Bond dances with death. And that in many ways explains his character. It explains why he likes the finer things in life. His food, his clothes, his cars, his women. It's because he may not be alive tomorrow. So he enjoys his life. Daniel Craig Bond 
doesn't seem to have enjoyed his life that much. And succumbing at the end to, to death in the way that he did, it just felt really long and wrong, sorry, and miserable. So I rewrote the ending, because that's what I do. So this is my ending for No Time to Die, okay? The film goes as it did until we get to the end. And instead of just being Bond and Lasagna Lynch's character know me taking down the bad guy in his lure, you do a big old commando raid, like in You Only Live Twice. You have the SAS and the Navy and, and the Army coming in to help Bond and take out all the men and plant the charges to blow the shit heap to Kingdom Come. But you can still have the Navy nuking the place as well. You know, from orbit, it's the only way to be sure. Alright, we still have Safin and Bond fighting the garden. Bond is still scratched with the toxin that means he can't go near his wife and daughter. It's a big old mano a mano, knockdown, drag out battle. But it looks like Safin's going to get the upper hand because Bond's in a bad way at the end of this movie. And that's when Nomi bursts in. And as she bursts in, Safin gets distracted by what the heck's that. Bond shoots him in the face. Nomi then has to help Bond up and the two of them make it out onto the beach. On the beach we see explosions raining everywhere, the navy rockets are arcing through the sky. It's a last minute, last ditch, last ditch attempt to make for safety. Nomi and Bond make it to the last speedboat. Camera on the speedboat as it zooms away towards us change the angle we see the rockets hit the island kaboom massive explosion as the speedboat zooms towards the camera Nomi turns to bond he infected you didn't he there's no reply from bond but his face daniel craig's wonderfully expressive craggy face tells the story yes he's infected me Nomi, you can't see them again Bond. Not without killing them. Nomi looks away. She picks up the walkie-talkie. Q. Did Madeline and Matilde get away? Q replies. Yes, they're here with me. In the background we hear Madeline. Where's James? Nomi looks at Bond. Commander Bond didn't make it, she says into the walkie-talkie. On Bond. Surprised then resigned. It's the right call. He cannot go near his wife and daughter without killing them, but they will not let him leave them, and he doesn't want to leave them, so they have to believe him to be dead. Back to Nomi. Q. Can you make Madeline and Matilde disappear? New identities and backgrounds, so no one, she looks at Bond, no one can find them. Q. I can do that. Nomi do it. I'm on my way back in. Bond looks out to sea, his face impassive. The speedboat zooms away from the destroyed island. The camera pans up into the blue sky. Epilogue. The camera pans down from the blue sky onto MI6HQ. Interior, M's office. Q, Moneypenny, Nomi and M behind his desk, all in the office. Bond walks in. Q says, you seem to have more lives than my cat, 007. Bond. One less now. He looks at Q. Thank you for what you did. Q nods. M. 006 has been debriefing us, Commander Bond. It was the right call, 007. Bond. Yes, sir. Looks at Nomi. Bond. 006? We had a 006. He was a traitor. Nomi. That's why we have a new one. Bond. Better than 0069, I guess. Moneypenny. Now, James. I don't want to have to report you to HR. Again. M. Yes. Well. Can we skip the customary by-play and get back to work? Close up on Bond. Gladly, sir. Can't think of anything else I'd rather do. Roll credits. It's still tragic. It's still a tragic ending. He can't go near his wife and daughter. The people he did actually quit 
MI6 for. He can never see them again. They have to go through the rest of their life believing Bond to be dead, and he has to let them believe that. It's still a sad ending. But it doesn't kill the central character of your 60-year-old franchise. Because I'm not entirely sure a regular audience is going to buy them bringing him back now. Remember, I've talked about this before, but I knew the Amazing Spider-Man reboot was doomed from the minute I sat in the cinema and two 12-year-old kids sat in front of me, looked over to each other and said, why is Uncle Ben in this one? They killed him in the other one. The regular audience is a lot more sophisticated now than you will give them credit for. But when you fucking kill the main character on screen, dead, they do not expect him to come back. And this kind of just treating death as an obstacle to be overcome is what's ruined comics. It's why we don't take comic storytelling seriously anymore. They've just killed Harry Osborn again. And the fact that I add an again at the end of that means that that as a storytelling device is now just, it's just laughable. We don't take it seriously. We don't care. And the minute you don't care, we're not bothered. We're not interested. I don't know why they decided to kill James Bond at the end of this film. I can't help but think it was the wrong decision. And it casts a pallor, not only over this film, which, as I say, for three quarters of its runtime is as good as Skyfall. It casts a pallor now over the entire Daniel Craig era. And the only thing I can think of is that the Broccolis are preparing to sell up with the news that MGM has been bought out by Amazon, which apparently they weren't terribly pleased about because it means the Bond films will now be on a, a streaming service, which they've avoided. They've avoided putting the Bonds on a streamer. And I can't help but think they may be able to cash out and move on and just leave it to other people to abuse. Because the only reason, the only way this series goes on at this point in a way that I think I'd support it is if you carry on with this cast. But without Daniel Craig, you carry on with this M and this Q and this Money Penny and know me as 007 and you go forward. That's the only way forward I can see at this point. Anyway, there were my thoughts on No Time to Die. Spoilers, obviously. Let's check out the email, should we? Before we close up for the day. Okay, emails from Kurt Grunwald, who said, Andy, the music mix at the end of the Palace of Glittering Lights was too high, too loud over the top of your voice. It must have been loud, it was over my voice. I couldn't hear you at all. This was the show that dealt with Logan's run. All right, I'll lower it, see what happens. I didn't notice that it was loud, but, you know, it is what it is, isn't it? Uh, Alex Johans has emailed in. Hi, Andrew. Hope you're well. I'm tickety-boo, apart from this rotten cold. I don't know if you can tell. I just listened to episodes four and five of your coverage of the Metalini McFarlane run on Spider-Man. And whilst it feels wrong to call such a task fun to experience, you made those stories and those books an entertaining listen. Well, thank you very much. I'm working my way through Erwolf, and whilst I love series one and I'm still enjoying season two, my passion has stalled somewhat for the same reason you dislike Spidey's portrayal in the final part of the McFarlane run. Character inconsistency. Well, that's the problem with a lot of American television shows of that vintage. When you write in 22 to 26 episodes a season, it's all different writers. There's going to be some level of inconsistency. Also, season two was 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 a problem for a lot of people. Jan Michael Vincent was descending into, into whatever his personal problems were. The network was saying, let's not make it political. Let's get rid of Archangel. We've got to have a woman in there. So there's more episodes in season two that are Erwolf. I mean, there's one fucking awful episode where Herbal helps a country and western singer. And you're like, what the hell has happened to this show? It's still fun, though, in many ways. Alex continues, I love morally grey characters and outright villainous protagonists like Cisco from DS9 and Hannibal from Hannibal. I also love morally righteous paragons like Picard or Clark Kent. What I struggle with are characters who will lecture about, who will lecture, sorry, about morality one minute only to commit horrible acts the next. I don't want to spoil anything, because I genuinely consider Earl a good show, but in the first series, Hawk goes up against a literal Nazi. 
Which he does, fight like a duff. Whilst in the second season, some episodes just seem to be an excuse to justify Hawk blowing people up. It's a strange show. Fun, but strange. Well, I think I said that in, in my coverage, didn't I? There are episodes where Hawk is just an outright murderer. There are many, many villains in that show that, you know, they don't really deserve to die in a fiery conflagration. But that's the show. And it always seemed really weird to me that the network were like, don't make it political, but he can kill people all the time. And it's like, okay, but the A-team weren't allowed to kill anyone. So it seems very strange. Oh, and I listed your episode on DC's Star Trek run and greatly appreciated it. Comics are not my domain, but I'm glad to hear Star Trek had success there. Sincerely, Alex Alistair. Well, thank you very much. Glad you enjoyed that. If you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginbeady.com is the place to email to. I'm going to go now because this cold is really swelling up behind the eyeballs. Okay, we'll end tonight with something a little bit different from the norm. You should leave a Bond film ebullient. You should leave a Bond film as a man with balls three times bigger than they were you went in, a 20-inch cock, and believing that your Nissan Micra is, in fact, an Aston Martin DB5. It isn't. We know this. You know, none of us will look good in a tacedo, and if we order a vodka martini shaken not stirred at the bar, we just come across as a twat. But that's not the point. The point is, it's the ultimate male wish-fulfillment character, and you should come out of those films happy and joyous and amazingly full of life, not miserable as sin. So here's closing this episode in a way that hopefully will make you smile. All right, everything's going to be okay, and I'll see y'all real soon. Take care. Goodbye. Nobody does it better. Makes me feel sad for the rest. Nobody does it half as good as you, baby. You're the best.